Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I've talked to him many times at different occasions, whether it's on the beach, Manawaska, One Volleyball, and I'm excited to get this on the air because the guy has had a great career, and I can't wait to get into it and tell some stories. So today's guest is an 18U national champion. He went on to play at York University, where he's an OUA champion. He later on coached at Queens, where, again, earned an OUA championship. He's still the career leader in blocks and 10th in kills at York. He played pro in the Netherlands and Austria before joining the beach national team, where he's got a bronze medal at Norseca. He also plays in the One Volleyball volleyball league where he was awarded the best blocker and i think 2017 got to check my records but that's enough of his resume because we got to get to the episode please welcome to the show james battiston batty thanks for doing this man hey man great to be here definitely a little late to get you on the show but uh it's good i'll try not to skip over anything because i feel like i i knew a lot about your career but as we're talking before the show stuff's popping up and i just want to get into it but i don't want to glance over stuff for the for the listeners so Anyone who's going to, you know, Google your name or try to do research for the show is going to figure out that you're from Malton, Ontario. And I was like, wow, Malton, like how many national team athletes came from there? But then I realized you basically got amalgamated by Mississauga. So is it fair to say that you grew up in Mississauga? <laughs> That's pretty fair to say. Malton, shout out Avro Arrow, uh, the originator of the uh, that fighter pilot that ended up getting scrapped in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, we're Mississauga, so, you know, Shawan, any number of guys that are on the national team. Nice, but you were a pre-Pacman guy. So just tell me, like, what other sports were you playing growing up? And, like, what was your high school scene or your club volleyball scene? Because I think people think of Mississauga and think of Pacman, but they weren't the club when you were coming up, right? Yeah, so Pacman wasn't a club growing up. The club that I actually grew up playing in was called Westside uh, Volleyball Club. Um, it would probably be the, the predecessor because it is that area, it is that demographic of uh, – of like Brampton, Mississauga, um, Halton area. Yeah, high school, high school, I basically played anything I could get my hands into. I played volleyball, I played basketball, I did track and field, I did archery, um, basically anything that would get me out of school, if I'm being completely <laughs> honest. But, uh, nice, nice. And at what point in your career did you know club volleyball was a thing? Because I think some people have a very interesting starting point. So was it was it a teacher that got into it or was it people on your high school team? Or when did you learn that like West Side was a thing and you could play volleyball competitively outside of school? So we were at a tournament in grade eight. Um, so that would be probably middle, middle school. Uh, and there was someone just going around handing out little west side volleyball club pamphlets and i brought it home to my parents i was like hey i i wouldn't mind going and trying out for this next year when it when it opens up uh and that would have been midget or 15 you maybe for all those people that have no idea what midget age division would be and ended up making the team and then that's how i got started into playing a little more organized club volleyball Nice. And I'm sure our, our passionate listeners would recognize West Side and think of like Dan Lewis or Steve Delaney. So were, were you aware of some of these guys who had already played at the club or, or who was even like coaching or on your team that maybe some of our listeners would fire up to hear about? Ooh, 
the only the only guy that I can think about that would have probably made it to uh, post secondary would have been Dan McCray. He played at Queens. He was a left-handed right side. I had no idea that Dan Lewis and Steve Delaney came out of West Side Volleyball Club. Um, that is like crazy to hear about knowing Steve Delaney. Um, <laughs> I wish I had known this when uh, when we played men's teams together. I would have had so many questions. Exactly. Um, but uh, Mike Russell coached at Central Peel, and Rick Hansen was, was probably the only coach uh, whose name I can pull off out of the top of my head. Nice. And in your club career, you were a team all guy, right? So were you playing, uh, was that in your 18 year year? Or did you start as like an underager team Ontario? Like who would have been your cycle for the provincial team? Oh, my year team. was a little bit different back then because we didn't have 15 teams or however many for like every age bracket. There was kind of just like the 18 U edition. So I would have done it in my, my 18 U year. Uh, guys that were on that team, Josh Babyface Collins is on that team. Um, Alex Jerome is on that team. Dan Murray, Brock Pehar. Uh, who else was on that team? Was Simic in your era or was he on the beach at that point? Who's that? Sorry, uh, Simic was he an indoor guy at that time or was he already playing beach pretty seriously? Simic was a little bit older than we were, so he would have been at Guelph okay. already. Oh, okay. uh, but he was probably a beach guy, I think, already, because he and Lucas Perosa, I think, did the under twenty-one Olympics or something in Australia. I think they won back in the day. Nice, nice. And when, I, I know it's not that far of a drive to be a, a Saga area guy to go to Scarborough, but what what went into the decision to, to go to Falcons? And that's where you earned like an 18U national championship. Uh, so I played Westside up until 17U. And that, that year was a little bit rough. We had a, a really strange coaching dynamic where it was a couple friends who couldn't always make it because of their other personal commitments. So every tournament we'd have like a different head coach. And then eventually by the time we got to provincials, everyone had their own ideas on how we should function. And it just really wasn't working out. Um, so I informed the club at the end of the year that I was looking to um, go somewhere else unless we could firm up the, the coaching staff for the following year. Um, that summer uh, was a regional team, provincial team year. So played regional team, our region one provincial team uh, met a bunch of different guys. And so what ended up happening was through conversations with some of those guys, it became a, okay, where, where would I like to play? And it was between going to, I think it was Aurora where the Hercules were, Pete and Paul were there going to Bronte. Cause that wasn't too far to go to Oakville. Um, where that group of like James McKay and there were a couple like other really good guys down there uh, were going to Scarborough. And so after talking to the Scarborough guys, because I think there were three of them on our provincial team that year, it decided, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my talents to Scarborough. Uh, and funny enough, like the regional team that I was on and the provincial team, uh, our right side, 
from the club team I was on was also on the team that uh, Dan McCray, who ended up playing at Queens. So in the summer, I told him, hey, I'm, I'm leaving. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm going, but if you're curious, I'll let you know. Uh, so when I decided to leave and pick my team that I was going to, he decided he was going to leave too, and we both ended up going um, to Scarborough and fight there. So we actually used to have a convoy uh, because he lived in Brampton, so we'd like have multiple stops along the way and pick up guys so that it wasn't as big of a drive uh, to Scarborough every practice. Now, was that... Would you say that was common at that time? Because I think the super teams and kids want to stack. Like, it's definitely happening in this era. Was it happening in your era? Or were you kind of one of the first groups to move? Like, obviously, in 18U and you've played regional team or provincial team, you just know different guys, and sometimes you want to play with your friends. But was it common to see guys move clubs that often? Uh, I don't think it was super common. I do remember they were pretty adamant about the tampering rules. Uh, back then they were pretty hard up on making sure that there weren't conversations that were going on in the background. So I never spoke to Mark Ainsworth, who, who was the coach until I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I want to come here. And he's like, all right, well, we need to go through all these steps to make sure that everything is legit. Um, but for the most part, no, there weren't, there wasn't a ton of jumping around, but there also wasn't anywhere near the amount of clubs that there are now. Um, so if you wanted to leave a club, you were making a serious commitment or committing your parents to a pretty serious commitment of, uh, driving you to like 30 to 45 minutes away to get to the next club. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I know Mark's son, Graydon is, is younger than you. So was Mark coaching his own son through club or who was your head coach? Was Mark Ainsworth running the 18U at Falcons that year? Yeah, Mark did run our team. Uh, Graydon would have been probably two years younger and there's a chance that Mark was coaching that team, but I also, it could have been ish like ish might've been uh, coaching that team back in the day. And when you get to the gym, can you tell it's, it's special? Cause again, trying to do some research for the show, it looks like you guys won nationals. I think were you second at provincials and you won the Penn state tournament, which is a heck of a tournament for a Canadian team to win. That one is a big accomplishment, right? So when you enter the gym, are you looking around being like, this is basically my provincial team or how, how did that season start to unfold as tournaments started happening and practices were going on? I don't think we really had like any major aspirations uh, when we started. Uh, it was in Scarborough. So like the gym that we practiced in was not pretty. Like it was not a good floor. It was like that old school, like hard tile. Like my knees were terrible uh, from, from that floor. But like the teams that we competed against were, were really solid. Ronnie Beach was the other top team that year. That's actually who we lost to in provincials. But we normally would finish first uh, or second with them all year, bouncing back and forth. Uh, the Penn State tournament, that's who we beat in the final. Um, so we finished first, Ronnie finished second. Durham was the other team that finished third, but I think it was like a, a little bit of like they had some overager situation because of the, the age group for, for Penn State. And then showing up to nationals was just... I think we came in ranked 13th and we're just, you know, we are going to do what we're going to do and ended up having like a really solid run and ended up beating a very Alberta partisan crowd in the middle of nowhere in Saskatchewan. 
Yeah, we were talking before the show. Was that the Dallas Sunnies era, or who were some of the guys you would have played against that year? Oh, uh, so the final was Red Deer. So that had Dallas Sunnies, who obviously went on to be on the national team. It also had Seth Schalk, who ended up being uh, starting outside for Trinity. Uh, like the years that they started to come up, like that first year that they won nationals where they beat Alberta, like three dong at that. Um, so they were there. Uh, one of our playoff games, we beat two in Linkfeld. So there were guys that ended up making it through to the national team program that we ended up having to go through. Uh, I don't think we lost a match. Wow. Uh, the entire tournament. Um, Looking back on it, I mean, realistically speaking, we could have actually not won the final. Uh, the best of three format was what was in play at the time. So we won the first set like 32-30. Then we got handed 25-14 and then won 16-14. But <laughs> Dallas at the time could basically almost OT to the back line. So we were super attentive to our matchup rotations to make sure that we had our biggest left side and usually myself in the front row as much as possible to try to stop him. Because at 18U, he was he was pretty unstoppable. Yeah, just to give our listeners a perspective, I think it's fair to say you're 6'7", 6'8", and a jumper, and you're telling me Dallas was going over top of you at that time? No, not over me. Oh, the left side. The left side, okay. No, not the left side either, but like if we, if, if we didn't have like a big enough guy at the net, he would go over and he would routinely go over most of the guys that we were playing against in the tournament. Like Crazy. his hitting warmup was insane. Like it was, it was very fun to watch. Crazy. Crazy. So you're, you're coming through club, you're, you're winning all these tournaments or being super competitive at everything you go to, including that Penn state one. So what was recruiting like for you? Cause obviously I, I think recruiting has changed a lot for kids today than maybe our era, but uh, at what time did you start looking at post-secondary as an option? Were any coaches kind of coming to you? Were you approaching them? Was, was maybe can West or uh, NCAA ever going to be an option? Like what were some things that you took into consideration for, for playing at the next level? I actually didn't really start any post-secondary stuff until my last year my last year of high school. Um, he was my regional team coach when I was probably 15 years old. So summer of 99, he was our regional team coach and Wally always kind of kept me in his loop of information, uh, being 20 minutes away, like my hometown's 20 minutes away from York. Uh, so he kind of started recruiting early. So I would get tickets, tournaments, a lot of information. I'd get newsletters. But in terms of other schools, I don't remember hearing anything from anyone until I got to ATU. Uh, NCAA wasn't really a thing. Uh, Mark, having gone through playing in the States when he was in post-secondary school before he ended up coming back to Canada, would kind of just act as a filter and if he didn't think that the offer that was going to come to you was good enough he actually just wouldn't tell you i wouldn't find out until like a year later that there were schools that were like interested in talking to me that he just didn't come through like if it wasn't a div one school he just didn't tell you wow <laughs> uh, so 
I, I have no regrets about that. I don't think playing Div three volleyball in the states would have been would have been the best thing for me. Um, so I had mostly local universities, so like Queens and Brenda Ryerson, Dan Oda, who was coaching at Dow at the time, was was pretty interested. Um, I was getting some Ken West offers, uh, UBC. Uh, had a little bit of conversation with Sask. Uh, and U of A at the time, and then a couple more filtered in after um, that year because there was the junior national team trials that year that ended up invite only making it to. So it was all of like 33 guys. And so you would have some coaches interest from that. I remember a couple of coaches asking me to consider uh, their college programs uh, after that tryout. But it was, it was certainly not like kids today where you're like grade 10 and you're like, oh my goodness, I need to get my video out. I need to get my highlight tapes. I need to, need to make sure that like people know my name. And coaches also start way sooner now, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what, uh, what sealed the deal for York? Like what were you looking at as, as a grade 12 student? Like were you, I want to play right away. I want to play for a championship. Like uh, I want to stay close to home. Like do you remember anything that was a, a – a big consideration or what finally sealed it? Because uh, like you said, you already had a relationship with Wally, but uh, what made you finally pick York? So my grade 13 OAC year, because that was still a thing back then. Right. Uh, I actually wanted to be an accountant. I could do accounting in my sleep. I was pretty good at it, but in order to apply to universities to do accounting, you needed algebra and geometry, calculus and finite can't do super expressed math. So I ended up having to change my major uh, to kinesiology. So that ended up me applying to Queens, York. Uh, I went to, I applied to Mac for social sciences because that's what Dave said was about the only thing that I should apply for there. Um, and I ended up making my decision solely based on financial reasons. Um, I wasn't interested in shelling out a bunch of money at 18 for my degree to go and get a different experience. So um, by staying at York, I was able to either live at home or um, commute back and forth and live not too far from campus. So that was actually my biggest, uh, my biggest factor. Nice, nice. And again, what was your first impression of York? Because uh, again, doing some research for the show, you're, you're on the all-rookie team. The team's competitive. I think when you left York, you were an OUA champion, uh, had a second place and two bronze. So great career that you're putting together. So what was it like walking in? Like, did Wally approach the York team different than he was approaching like Team Ontario and regional stuff when you would work with him? Or was it more the same than different? It was probably a lot of the same. Coming in, I basically knew I would start. I, I actually forgot about this. There was a coach who was at Niagara College while I was in high school. He tried to come and recruit me to train me as a setter. Was it Kirby at that time or was that before Kirby? It, it, was, it was Kirby. Kirby. So he, he's like, hey, shows up to one of my high school games. I'm interested in training you as a setter. And I think like you could be like a really good setter. And at 18, I looked him in the eye and said, no offense, but I'm not coming to your college to sit on the bench and learn to be a setter when I can start at most of the teams in university. 
sorry, but I don't really have any interest. <laughs> I'm surprised as a middle, you weren't fired up. Maybe if you would have said left side, you would have changed your mind, but you weren't interested in setting at that time. <laughs> no, man, I was interested in playing. I was like, I'm going to start at most of the universities in this province right now. Why do I want to go and sit on the bench? It might have been fun, though. Like, looking back, that could have been, like, really fun. But, no, I was more interested in playing. I wanted to, like, play against what these men were every time I'd go watch. And and take me through York at that time. Because, again, I'm just kind of digging through the archives. Like, was Mingo still there? Did he just leave? Was Darren Goss, Anderson, uh, Kinoshita? Like, who were some of the guys on the York team that were the kind of the vets when you arrived? So, Mingo just left when I got there so uh we had darren goss uh anderson was there kino was in fourth year fourth year yeah dan bates was there uh who else sholin was he sholin sholin came in the year after okay so the 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 year that we ended up winning we actually started three outsides who were all rookies so we had sholin on the right and we had Jordan Matthews and Paul Woodstock on the left. Um, because the last game before Christmas break, we were at Mac. We're 9-0. and uh, Our setter, Gerardo, goes up for a joust against the Mac middle. Mac middle kicks him in the knee accidentally underneath the net, which causes his knee to hyperextend as he's landing, tears his ACL out for the season. Oh, gosh. So we actually spent our entire Christmas break and Christmas tournament figuring out who's going to set. Between our second setter, this guy, Jeff Pike, great guy, love that guy, um, my pepper partner, actually, Paul Vitstaka, or Jason Kinoshita. So we ended up solidifying that Kino would be our best option, which meant instead of having a fifth-year left side who was a grease guy, and could pass really well, then we stuck another rookie outside. <laughs> so our starting lineup was our center was a fifth year. Our right side was a rookie. Our two middles were second and third years. Our left sides were both first years, and our libero was a second year. And we ended up going eight and two uh, the rest of the way, and then ended up winning against Western in the final. So, like, Kinchy and, like, uh, Mark Sidler was there. Uh, Alex Jerome, who was, like, on my team when we won nationals, provincial team guy. It was a, it was an interesting year, considering we lost our starting setter halfway. Definitely, definitely. And I think for our listeners, again, just to set the timeline, you kind of entered when, you know, let's just say it, even if they are friends of the show listeners, U of T's dynasty was over. I think they won the year before you guys did, but then like, I think Oris stopped Vinner and all those guys like the Ainsworth or not Ainsworth that uh, Arsenal was gone. Like all that, that kind of era appeal, those guys had cycled out. And I don't think the, the Mac era of them fighting with Queens with like Groenveld's era had started and they won a couple in a row, maybe. So it, it seemed like a pretty good era. We were kind of making a joke. We'll have him on the show soon enough and he can defend himself, but uh, snakes Ryerson, how they never won a championship is just very interesting interesting to me uh you mentioned hinchy at western like it seemed like a great era for oua volleyball so yeah i I gotta know with all these personalities you just talked about at york were you guys just trying to keep it together because there's so many personalities in that room but so much talent that you mentioned the setter thing and you guys still find a way to win but 
how much talent is in that room, but like also how many guys like can you just tell to shut up at once? Because there's so many personalities around. There was a lot of uh, hey, you need to shut your mouth right now or something bad happens to you <laughs> coming from Kino and Ryan Anderson because Ryan at, you know, six, eight, and what, like 240 pounds would just demolish anyone. But yeah, the roller coaster's main goal was to same as any other roller coaster, just get to the end and let's hope that the wheels are still on and that uh, everyone is still in the seat that they're assigned and hopefully no one died. Um, that year that I came in, though, was like a really interesting year because like we were talking about UFT and having all those guys. There was a game we were playing, and James McKay fires a back set to Adrian Weglow. And Oris, who's like pretty mild-mannered, just stands up from a seat and yells. He's like, Jimmy! No back sets. High outside to Mark. <laughs> that was back when the OUA still was basically just all high balls. But that was when Mac was trying to run everything tempo. So, um, unbelievable. Yeah, and then a lot of dynamics. So the year you guys take it down and go to nationals, did you experience that firsthand as a middle that like the, the level of the OUA, there was some big physical guys, guys who want to pound these high balls. Right. But what was Canada West or, or somebody coming from the AUS at that time? Was the speed of the game a little bit different coming from Ontario going to nationals? Yeah, I definitely say that speed, uh, was, a little bit faster. We ended up matching up with Trinity um, first round and their, their offense was definitely quicker. Uh, I mean, Howitson was their starting center at the time and Josh being six, seven could set a ball you know, three quarters of the way up the antenna to an outside. They could hit it three quarters of the way up, up the antenna. Um, so it, it was definitely quite a big, Change, but the OUA then started to catch up. And then with Matt kind of leading the push on everything being a little bit faster, the game really started to um, to change. I remember by the time I got out, the game was a lot different. Being a middle blocker was a lot different my first couple of years than it was my last couple of years. Nice, nice. And as you kept going through your career, and you mentioned like Ryan Anderson was definitely a leader, did you feel yourself stepping into that role? Or who was kind of keeping it all together at York as you kind of went through like third and fourth year and you kind of stepped into a vet role. Uh, third and fourth, it was probably like Ryan first being like the oldest guy in the team, um, myself, and then Michael Batulo, who we just called Skilo, who is like our, one of our senior, more senior guys, kind of keeping it up. I mean, the year after Kino left, um, kind of left like a big gap in our, leadership but a smaller gap in our talent and like a lot of times we would have situations where we would say like we need to like do better we're like one guy is not going to comprise like how drastic of a team we should be like people need to step up put your ego aside put your attitude aside and like everyone needs to man up because like we are more talented this year than we were last year. So we shouldn't have a worse season. Yeah. Help me with that timeline. Like when you took a silver, uh, what year were you in that year? That was my first year. So for, and then you, you would have finished with two bronzes then. Is that the timeline? Yeah. So my first year we lost UFC in the final. 
that was the year that they had all their fifth years. So like Binstock and Arsenal. Uh, the second year we won. The third year we bronze and lost to Ryerson, I believe, in our semi. And then the fourth year we lost to Queens in a semi um, that we should have won. Uh, it would have given us a berth to Nationals because Mac was hosting and Mac was the other team that was going to be in the final that year. And then my last year, the wheels just completely fell right off. We actually don't even think we did the playoffs. With mostly the same roster, right? Because you mentioned when you guys won, it was first and second years at key positions, right? With a fifth-year setter, right? Yeah. So the last year, the last year was a bit of like just wheels, like literally wheels falling off. So like Anderson was gone, but we had a couple of stockers on the team. And by the time we finished the year, we did not have as many stockers. <laughs> now we've had Paul on the show and he is a listener. So uh, we can get into this. So we've heard his version, but when you look back on that year, again, was it just a lot of the strong personalities that were on the team that maybe could be controlled as maybe first and second year guys that by the time they reach fourth year, they're not going to listen. They're not going to buy in. Like what was, if, if you look back and you're like, man, we really messed up and I wish we could have changed this. Does anything stand out or things just happen the way things were going to happen because of all those personalities in the room? Yeah, I would say, I don't think there's a whole lot that we necessarily could have done. Like, I think we had a lot of very strong personalities um in that last year so you know you you can only you can only handle so much in a gym situation and there's other things that just need to be handled on a personal level and i think sometimes a little bit too much personal things made their way into the gym and it kind of derailed us uh a little bit and then looking ahead, uh, when did Indoor Pro become a thing? Because I think, uh, again, I've said this a lot on the show that I think people seem to think you leave U Sports and you get a contract. Because I think Steve Marr and Riley Barnes really started that era where they were getting good deals out of university. But that was not happening in our era. So I'm curious, how did you find an agent? How did you find like your first league? Because I think U Sports has done a good job and, and the men's indoor national team has done a good job to build it up that a lot of guys who aren't even involved with the national team are getting good contracts. But let's be honest, that wasn't the case in the mid 2000s, right? So how did you start to look ahead and play indoor pro? Uh, I think by the time I finished my last year, uh, it was something that I was, I was considering. Uh, there were not, like you were saying, a lot of guys uh, playing pro uh, by the time I ended up, uh, going. So like when I graduated university, I think there were like 30, like mid thirties, number of guys actually overseas, like volleyball Canada used to keep a list. I don't know if they keep a list now of guys that are overseas, but of those 30 guys, you're looking at 20 plus of them all being national team members. My trip to overseas was like a little bit long. I ended up, um, trying an agent the year after I got out uh, I was actually supposed to go to Malaga in Spain when due to the finances in the world at that time team folded uh, flooded their market my opportunity fell through and I had a couple years of just trying to find contracts find agents um, I got hooked up with an agent in Italy flew me over did some contract stuff there did some tryouts, had a couple offers for A1, A2, and just could not get my visa. 
So I spent a couple months trying to get a visa. My dad was actually born in Italy. So we went to the consulate to see if I could get my citizenship and he could get his citizenship. Um, but because of the rules that the consulate had, they wouldn't give me mine and they would only give him his if he moved back to Italy. And even if he moved back, that the lineage doesn't technically count anymore because I was born here as a Canadian. Uh, so there was no way for me to get uh, European citizenship. So eventually I took a chance on, I don't even think I remember the name of uh, the name of the agent that I had, but anyway, I had to pay to fly myself to Austria to do a tryout. And then once I got there, they either tell me to keep me or tell me to go find somewhere else. So I ended up uh, having a successful enough tryout that I signed my first contract to play in Austria. And that's where it all started. But I was like, probably like four years removed from university by then. Wow. It was, it was a very, very different process. Yeah. And, and when you were in Austria, did you play in Klagenfurt? Cause I think that uh, city comes up a lot is like, I think people still love it as like their beach destination. I know it's not a tour stop anymore, but when it was, it was like the, like you felt like a rock star going there. So playing indoor volleyball, did, were they just fanatics there? Uh, Klagenfurt was wild, man. It was, uh, it's like the third biggest city, I think in Austria the the volleyball was like a little bit fanatical. I definitely know from hearing from all the guys that played there on tour that the beach tour situation was a little bit different than the indoor situation. Um, but the city itself is beautiful. It's like a really nice city. The club don't have any great things to uh, <laughs> speak about on that front. But uh, yeah, that. Uh, beautiful place to play the beaches were really nice it was it was incredibly beautiful there and how did you find being a professional athlete because as a guy who shared a cabin with you at Madawaska, like man you're you're detailed you're a physical dude but the the amount of times i would see you rolling out or stretching out or just taking care of your body as a coach at Madawaska, those are long days like how did you find the time because i think there's there's guys that the time kills them and they get caught up doing video games or they want to talk to people back home, but the time zone doesn't match and they don't really like that. You know, they, they might lift uh, every other day or they might have a practice, but the free time absolutely eats them up where did you really enjoy the lifestyle of being a professional athlete? Like was there English speakers on your team? Was there stuff to do or, or how did you find the time? Because uh, man, there's a lot to do in a day if you're, if you're only got a two hour practice, right? Yeah. The best way that I can explain being a professional volleyball player to anyone is think of going to university and then having no class. So like you're a varsity athlete who has no class. So basically just like you were saying, you would practice, you'd have one, maybe two practices a day, and then you would have your workout time. Um, I was fortunate enough my first year that we had a bunch of English speakers on our team. I actually lived with three other guys, two guys from California and one guy from the UK. Um, so we basically just worked out every single day. Uh, me and the guy from the UK who was on the Olympic squad for London that year, we just would bike to the gym, lift, bike to the team restaurant, have lunch, bike home and have practice. Like we both put on like 20 kilograms or more on a bench press, uh, in the eight months that we were there, not that bench pressing matters whatsoever <laughs> to hitting a volleyball but our jerseys look way better at the end of the year than they did at the start of the year it was it was a bit of a challenge i think 
I spent a lot of time exploring the city that we lived in because it was really nice and, and reading. But I remember when I ended up going back and playing my second year that I started trying to track my health metrics a little bit more because I don't know if I was overtraining or if I actually got depressed um, from the change in life during my first season. Like there was a lot of differences, right? You move to a country that they don't really speak your language at all. The food is different, grocery shopping is different, just everything about your life completely changes. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna figure out whether or not I'm depressed or overtraining and just start tracking metrics over time. So the year I played in the Netherlands, I had like a giant chart on the back of my door that I would rate practice. How hard was practice? How hard was my workout? What other stresses did I have? How many hours of sleep did I get? What was my resting heart rate every morning? Because I'm, I'm either going to beat myself up or I'm depressed and I need to start taking other measures to make sure that I'm taking care of myself. Did you learn that in your degree or uh, we'll, we'll backtrack here in a second. Just talk about your coaching because uh, you got into coaching right after university and I kind of skipped over that. But I, I'm talking to like you're saying all this stuff and my ears are perking up. But I had to be in like an ACD program through CSIO to learn about RPE and hours of sleep and rest recovery. And you're a professional athlete and you're tracking this on your own. So what made you want to do this other than you talked about your mental health? But was this something from your degree that you learned about like rate of exhaustion, how many hours of sleep, like how to actually measure recovery? Like what made you want to do this? So I graduated with York with that kin degree that I talked about um, having to switch to because I couldn't do math. Um, that had letters in it because, like, why is that necessary? Um, yeah, to be completely honest, uh, my journey from like university playing pro was like pretty different. Like, if I look at how I am built and the things that I think of now and the way I treat my body now is significantly different than when I was in university. Like, it was very common for me at York to go to Stonecath, grab two burgers and a liter of chocolate milk, and that was lunch. So, like, my dietary habit wasn't super fantastic. Like, I was strong in university. Like, I could touch, like, over 11 and a half feet and weigh 240 pounds. Like, I actually got recruited by the football coach my last year at university to try out for the football team because I was that big and our football team's terrible. Um, so, like, that just wasn't sustainable. And in the time that I graduated, I realized that, my physical body is not going to get me to where I want to go in life. And then eventually that translated back into my sport and really tracking those things was going to allow me to hopefully continue to perform and get better while I was in Europe, as opposed to diminish because a lot of guys do burn out. Once you get over there, it is, it's as much of a mental grind as it is a physical grind. You see guys, that just phase out um, once they get over there. So it's pretty important to try and integrate and take care of yourself. Yeah, for sure. And uh, just to cover your coaching career, because I had forgot there was like a, a small gap in time between going pro and university. And I think that might line up with you. You spent a year with Queens and, and you guys took a championship down there. And then were you coaching Ottawa Mavericks, a pretty decent uh, 18U boys team with was that a Jory Spack year? I'm trying to think who who was there. Was that against Garrett's Crush era, maybe? I'm trying to put my timeline together here. Oh, so timeline-wise, the year I couldn't secure a visa to go to Italy, uh, Karen McClain at the Mavs was 
after Matawaska was like, hey, what are you doing right now? I was like, well, my contract stuff's all kind of falling through right now, so I'm going to try and find a job. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I need a coach for the 18U boys team here. I was like, all right, well, that's that's great. That's five hours away. <laughs> he's like, all right, well, uh, he's like, uh, we'll find you a place to live. We'll find you a job. You can come in here and coach the team. I was like, I need a couple of days to think about this. He's like, yeah, okay, you got three. Okay, so I ended up going, and that was the year that I coached 18 new match. So that was like SPAC and uh, Jory Mantha. Those would probably be like the biggest names that came out of that age group, but we were 100% playing like Garrett and John, and John was the coach. And uh, there's like a really funny story that John May sometimes brings up when I see him of that year, because it's my first year coaching. Like I've coached at summer camps, I've coached at Madawaska, but I've never coached a Pepsi before. We're at UFT Scarborough. It's the finals, and a free ball comes over, and Richard McKay, who I don't know if he ever played post-secondary, was on that team, pretty good left side, and he takes the free ball below the chin with his hands and volleys it. They end up getting a point out of it, and I stand up and I yell at the ref that this is not the beach. You cannot do that here. So John gets up. Now John's yelling at me. He's like, what does it matter that he's a beach guy? What does that have to do with anything? I was like, it has nothing to do with he's a beach guy, but you can't lift. So now John and I are standing at each other's attack lines, just face-to-face yelling at each other. I don't even remember what was said, but my assistant coach was actually Spack's dad because I didn't have my level two, so I needed a level two on the bench. And we're sitting there yelling, and he just looks at him, leans back in his chair, and starts giving him, like, nonchalant clapping kind of like egging everybody on long story short we actually did win that game i think it was the only time we beat crush all year um but yeah garrett was uh was that age division that i was coaching so as we're, we're bouncing around your career and you choose to like not pursue indoor pro anymore and you come to the beach how did that opportunity come up because uh, obviously i kind of skipped over in your bio at the start but you're you weren't new to the beach you had played beach a little bit growing up right so what what came around to join the beach national team was it honestly just you came to a tryout were you recruited did a guy ask you to play like uh, how how did you join team canada beach so i did play beach growing up um i finished second at 18u provincials uh, and ended up finishing fifth at nationals, losing to, ironically enough, in the quarterfinal, Martin Reeder. Nice. A real skinny, long-haired Martin Reeder. Um, definitely not the man chiseled aspect that he is this day. Um, so I was in the Netherlands, and our season was wrapping up, and I got a Facebook message, I think, from uh, Alex Korsakai and he's like, Hey, I need a, I need a training partner for the summer. Are you back? Are you interested, uh, in like doing some training with the beach national team? Uh, so we agreed on doing that. Um, and then when the summer was coming to an end, had an opportunity to go to uh, Norseca in Costa Rica with Simon Facto Boutin. And we actually took a bronze beating, uh, to the second American team, Avery Drost, and I can't remember the other guy that he was playing with. Um, Maybe Montgomery uh, at that time? I'm trying to think who he would have been. I, what I, was the name? I think Montgomery at that time. I think it was. I think it was Montgomery. He was a bit of a hothead. But uh, we ended up beating them in the bronze, but we had a really sweet semi against Hyde and Bourne. 
So back when like try must have been a little bit new. Um, it was a, a pretty sweet experience. And then after that, the trial like solidified, uh, solidified my choice to stay because I did have a contract offer coming from Germany uh, to go back to Div 1. Uh, and they offered me and I was like, I can't think about it for less than this. He's general manager said to give him a couple of days. He came back. He's like, I have your money. Are you coming? And I was like, no, I needed that just to think about it. But uh, I'm going to pass. Crazy. Well, you do yeah, take a medal. It would, have, it would have been an interesting year because I would have played with Nico. Oh, no way. Rukavina, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, he, he, dumped, he finished at Queens and he had actually signed on to the team in Germany. Was it just more tempting, one, because you're already an international medalist to stay with the beach national team? Or did, honestly, did you just want to be at home? You wanted to speak English? You wanted to go to restaurants? Like, did you just not want to do the overseas thing again? Or what went into that choice? Because I think as a beach guy right now, it's a struggle sometimes to get some of these indoor guys because that, that guaranteed money can be nice for some of these guys, right? Yeah, there were a lot of different personal choices uh, that really lended me to staying and a little bit of uh, a little bit of family pressure actually as well. Um, ended up in in my choice to stay rather than to go back. But it is like you were saying, it's a little bit hard for like uh, for indoor guys to think of trying to transition over because you're going from guaranteed money to guaranteed to spend money. Like if you're overseas, your flight's covered, your some of your meals are covered, you have a salary, you have all these things. And then when you're on the beach team, you are responsible for your own flights and your own food and all of the things that you need. So I can see that it's a little bit of a challenge um, for guys to want to put out their own money to do the thing that they can do and get paid for. So what were some of your first impressions? Obviously, getting a medal right off the bat makes it easier, but uh, sometimes the Norsega tour can be, well, it can be unorganized. It can be in like weird places, but you, you mentioned like Hyde and Bourne. I think uh, Binner and Schachter would have been another Canadian team playing a bunch of Norsegas that time. Uh, Virgin Ontiveros would have been Mexico. I, I think even Cuba, if it was the right tournament, like Nivaldo would have been there. Like there were some really good players playing Norsega tour at that time. So what was the kind of the impression of international volleyball for you? Did you feel like you belonged right away or were there certain players where you're like, wow, this is, this is legit. Yeah. The Mexican team was actually who won the tournament. Um, that first one that I ended up going to beating Hayden and Bourne. It was, it was different. When I started, I was definitely not as refined maybe as when I felt like I'd left. And there was a noticeable change as I went from being the guy being served and it didn't matter if we were here or, or at a tournament internationally, it was me. And then it eventually switched to um, whoever I would be playing with normally. But yeah, those Cuban guys, they were, they were crazy. They had that like six, eight defender, like really long, skinny, like you could jump really well. Um, yeah, no, I just wanted to know the level. Cause again, uh, snooping through the show, uh, Todd Rogers was kind of declining. And when we had him on the show, he mentioned that he kind of wanted to give back. And, and I understand there was some sponsorship stuff there too, but he was playing with basically a new blocker every year, trying to get more blockers for Team USA. So uh, I'm trying again to put the timeline together. Would he either have played with Ryan or Theo when you would have saw Todd Rogers at a Norseka stop? Yeah, so we did get to see Todd. Uh, Todd was with Theo. Uh, I think we were in Mexico. We actually had the... 
the fortunate pleasure of playing them. I mean, anytime you can play someone who has an Olympic medal, uh, that's gold, forget uh, any color really, uh, is a pretty cool experience. So I think, yeah, it was in Mexico, but honestly, the highlight of that, that tournament like, with Todd wasn't actually playing Todd. It was showing up to the rooftop hot tub uh, at the end of competition day to see Todd just hanging out in the hot tub. Um, so just like waltz right in. He's such a nice guy. He's super friendly. Um, he was very kind in answering all our questions that we had about what it was like to compete at the Olympics, um, what it was like to play for the U.S. national team. He told us a whole bunch about Red Bull and what his sponsorship was like with them. And he was telling us about how when he first started with them, it, I don't even think they necessarily really had a contract at the time, but uh, he had won a tournament and just in the mail a couple weeks later, a check for like 40K showed up. Oh and he like called, he's like, hi, it's Todd. We're like, yeah, what's going on, Todd? He's like, I just got a check in the mail for like 40 grand. Just curious what's going on. He's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we uh, honestly, we're just so happy with like your performance. And we think you're just so far just a great role model for Red Bull. So we just wanted to uh, to show our appreciation for that. And he's like, okay, thanks. <laughs> he's up the phone. He's like, damn. It's like, I didn't realize what I was into until that day. And it was obviously a great thing, so. I got to know some behind the scenes. Is there anything specific you asked him out? Because uh, when we had him on the show, like he, he can talk about anything. He can talk about like just vision probably for hours or his angle of approach or one of, one of my favorite comments they talked about is like when him and Phil were at the best of the game, if they played their A plus game, they thought they were untouchable. There was nobody else's A plus game in the world that could have played. Right. So he's just got like a great attitude, but it was great to hear about like his work ethic. So what was there anything technically tactically you took away from that conversation? That you're like, man, this guy just thinks the game at such a high level. I don't think I don't think we talked a whole lot of like technical tactical um, because it was just a little bit of shock and awe I think sitting in the hot tub with Todd just talking so um, really we kind of just let him talk about whatever he wanted and that was that was fine. Nice, nice. And as you did progress through your beach career, uh, I do have to know because uh, co-host of Sharp Cuts, uh, Garrett May, you ended up playing Arsika with him. I think you did a couple of domestic things with him. What was it like playing with my guy, Garrett May? Oh, man, Garrett May. I honestly, I was actually pretty fortunate that I got to play with Garrett. It was, it was a lot of fun playing with him. We, uh, we ended up playing together because I think I was with, I think I was playing with cam at the time or i didn't really have anyone so deering was injured so like garrett and i just trained together and then his opportunity to go to um uh, guatemala came up so he's like are we going i was like yeah i'll go with you that's no problem so so different to play with someone who thinks and understands beach volleyball as well as he does, right? Like, he won U21 Worlds, I think, with Shakhtar when he was 17. Um, so, a lot of fun to play with Garrett. Honestly, I think the, the most fun about playing with Garrett is just listening to him yell <laughs> and cheer and say all kinds of weird, inappropriate things, um, even off 
court. We had a really interesting meal uh, with Julie Gordon. Uh, who was Julie playing with at the time? Oh, Brandy, Camille, and Rachel. And Garrett was regaling us with tales about the Western days, what guys would show up with on their clothing to practice, just like all kinds of weird things. It became a slogan for the rest of the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I definitely remember just being around Ashbridge, whether it was an Orsica trial or you guys were playing uh, like a domestic event. And uh, I think a big block baddie became a catchphrase for a lot of people where you could just yell it out at any time. And it, there was no inappropriate time to be like, that's a big block baddie. You had to get the cadence right, though. You had to get Garrett's exact delivery of it. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember my Garrett actually being the originator of that because I am most frequently recall hearing that yelled from Jake McNeil. <laughs> <laughs> Who you never played an international event with. What's that? Did you even play an event, whether international or domestic, with Jake? No. <laughs> he would just yell it. He would, he would yell it, like, after in training sessions and stuff. He would just yell it. And, like, Gabe was, like, big on it, too. Um, I, I have no idea why he loved it so much. <laughs> or, like, just run around calling me Triple B. <laughs> but speak, speaking of Jake, though, I think I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of respect for his journey uh, on, the, on the beach tour. And, like, talking about Garrett, there was one match we played – it might have been it might have been a Norseka ranking tournament or it might have been an OVA tournament. But we were playing Jake and whoever Jake was playing with at the time. And I blocked Jake more times than I blocked anyone in my life. And like the matches were not close, like like maybe low teens. But after the game, like he came over to Garrett and I, he said thanks. He showed like a lot of like humbleness. And Garrett looked at me because I was shocked. I was like, I don't understand why this guy just thanked us for the whooping that we just gave him. And Garrett looks at me, he's like, no, 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 man. He's like, he, he thanked us for that because we could have mailed it in and not given like the best performance. He's like, but we gave him enough respect to just put the boots to him. And he understands that he got the best version that we had and he feels respected by that. So I was like, oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Wow. That's From that's that great to on, hear. Though, I don't I don't take it easy on anyone. Like I'm coaching Nabs right now, Nabs Beach, and if one of the kids doesn't show up and I have to jump in, I put the boost to them. Like I'm not mean about it and I don't get in their face. I put the boost to them and then explain to them what they can do then why I did some of the things I do so that it'll help them. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. And I think Garrett's era of crash definitely experienced that because at the beach crew one year, it was a Kobig tournament and it was a pool of four and Alex park. And I forget who he was playing with. They, they slapped this team. I think it was 15, zero was one set. And I think it was like 15, three, the next. And I, I just remember seeing the score sheet and I made a joke to Alex cause he was on the beach crew. Like, you couldn't have given them like one point, Alex. You had to like shut out a team on the beach. And he goes like perfectly straight face. Just like that'd be disrespectful. Like, what do you mean? He's like, you can't give people points. My job is to get, show them respect by playing the best I can. And like, that's actually more respectful than letting this team get five or six, like nothing points or start missing serves or like fooling around. So uh, that must be a John May thing. That's definitely passed on to these crush guys that they, they bought in completely where you, you kind of owe it to your opponent to do your best every single time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that's not going to be a favorable opinion of people to 
to take that kind of attitude um, where you're almost not remorseful about giving your hardest, even against a team that maybe can't handle it, but life is going to do the same thing. Like no one's going to, no one's going to hold your hand and coddle you if you're not ready to take on something. It's just going to, it's just going to take you down. So yeah, very, very different type of mindset to kind of give your best every time, regardless of the scenario and treat your opponent with enough respect that you're going to play your best regardless of whether or not they can handle it. Definitely, definitely. And just one more thing I wanted to pick your brain on because I think you were a big part of this league and, and there was a, a lot of guys who I think supported it. And I think uh, Jackie and Joe did a, a great thing getting off the ground and hopefully we'll see it back once this COVID thing gets figured out. But you were playing uh, one volleyball or, or Canadian Volleyball League and, and I think you were one of the guys right from the start. So as a guy who had played pro indoor and was on, the, I think you were still with us at the Beach National Team when you played in this league. What did that league mean to you as a player to like, have something to do that week where I think most clubs, I'm not going to over-dramatize. I think it was one practice a week and one match, but it was still, that match was a heck of a talent. Like I, there was a ton of people there. I think the, the crowd support could have been maybe a little bit better, but it was good to see like people get out in the community and really support it. So from your perspective as a player who had been at the highest level, what did it mean to be a part of one volleyball when it was getting off the ground there? I think it was great that they, uh, Jack and Joe did this and brought it, um, brought it back to a place where we're going to start trying to bring more attention to our athletes and our sport at home. It was great. Like the level the first year I think was like pretty good. Like my team the first year had Andre Brown, Ray Zito, I believe, Yorin, myself, um, and a couple other guys. Like every team had like a bunch of guys that were pro. Um, I hope that once COVID ends, that we could start to get that back. It was great. I think that they started in Alberta and they can expand and hopefully this could potentially turn into something where there's a little bit more of like a local summer tour. I think it'd be really good for our like pro guys if they want to have something to do in the summertime and a really good growing experience for the university guys to really get a better sense of the level that's out there more so maybe for the, for the East coast guys and the West coast guys, the level up there I find is a little bit higher anyway. So they're getting a little bit more exposure, but it would be great to see it eventually become a little bit more of a tour situation. Um, and now hopefully that we've had a couple of teams at the Olympics that they could start to get a push towards even like a getting back our beach our beach tour because that would be really important for our athletes and for sponsorships and I might take the burden off of them. So that'd be good. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Thanks, man. You've shared so much and you've already told a couple of really good stories. But uh, one tradition we've built on the show is just a, a funny or unique story where I think the volleyball community is pretty awesome, where you've played at the highest level, both indoor and beach. But man, something odd or funny must have happened along the way that you haven't already told us about. So I was hoping you can give us one more funny story before we let you go. So playing in Austria was was interesting. Um, and so I, I don't think our season's officially started yet. I think we're starting in a week or two and our coach decides, all right, boys, we're going to go climb a mountain before practice this evening. So pack a lunch, pack like a 
couple layers of clothes because obviously ground level is going to be a little bit different than atmosphere. You might need to layer up and change appropriately on the way up. So, okay, cool. Let's take this professional volleyball team of guys and let's go mountain climb. So the trip up isn't so bad. It's mostly paths and different avenues to get up until you get high enough that you are actually above the clouds. So there's a, yeah, there's a cross uh, that marks the highest point of the mountain. And the goal was to actually get everyone over to it. And as I got to the, the little pathway that would lead to this high point, I'm looking and the path, I swear, is no wider than a foot. Like not a human foot, but like 12 inches. And down on either side, easily a couple hundred meter drop off. So we were encouraged to go to the other side of this. And the path is only like maybe like eight to 10 feet long, but eight to 10 feet long when pretty much if you fall, you're going to die is slightly insane. To me. <laughs> anyway, I get across, I take my photo, I leave. We're all done. We're kind of just resting. It's been a couple hours climbing this friggin' mountain. And we're like, all right, how are we getting down? Where's the path? And the coach looks at us. He's like, no, 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 there's no path to get down. Well, are you calling in a helicopter? How are we getting down? No, no, no. You're going to run down the side of the mountain in the shale run. So basically, it's a couple inches deep, but as you run, it all shifts down. So you're almost like running and surfing simultaneously down the side of a mountain. <laughs> so like, <laughs> me and the American guys just all look at each other and go, this is nuts, right? And it just became a joke. Like for the rest of the way down, we're like, okay, first one to die, obviously loses. <laughs> So we end up getting down the mountain. Nobody dies. I ended up getting so sick from whatever I ate at like the rest stop on the way up that I couldn't practice that night. But I found out from the guys who had a two hour practice still after we spent eight hours hiking in a mountain, that practice was terrible. Obviously, because who climbs a mountain for eight hours and then tries to run a volleyball practice. So. That, that is like my most remembered experience from like playing abroad. And the local guys are probably just like, this is okay. Or were, was everybody on the same page as the foreigners being like, what are we actually doing right now? Well, I don't think anyone knew that we were going to go like literally climb a mountain. <laughs> like short of needing rock climbing equipment. I will send you, I'll send you pictures and videos that I have. that You can, that you can see and understand what it was like to like literally scale a mountain. And it probably would be like somewhere in the Alps, like, cause it is awesome. That's, that's brutal, but definitely fits the requirement of, you probably wouldn't have experienced that if you didn't play professional volleyball for this club, right? So volleyball gave you the gift of surfing down the side of a mountain. Hey man, I'm just dropping in. <laughs> Oh man, this has been awesome. Like I said at the start, I thought I knew a lot about your your journey and your career, but I definitely learned a lot. I, hopefully the listeners got a kick out of this one too. So thanks for taking the time and sharing all that you did. Thanks for having me, Josh. This was a lot of fun.